You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. First Timothy chapter 3, we'll continue uh, walking through these two letters from Paul to Timothy. just want to say that uh, we are glad that you're here. We're glad that those watching online all over the world this morning are here. Uh, I want to encourage you that if you didn't get to watch or be part of last week's service, I know it was different, but uh, it's already having a tremendous impact. Uh, For the folks that uh, have reached out to us as a result of the testimonies that they heard last week, uh, it had a tremendous impact. So what I would encourage you to do is if you haven't watched it, Go back and watch it. If you have, go find the link and share it. Share it with a friend. Send it to someone, Facebook Messenger or email or whatever your connection point is. Uh, For someone who may be dealing with some of the things that were mentioned on this stage last week, I do appreciate their courage in doing that. And I knew that the Holy Spirit was going to use that, and He is. And uh, I'm grateful for that. So take the time and and put that in front of someone who can, uh, well, can hear from the Lord. I'm going to tell you on the front end this morning that this sermon is going to be a little different than, than maybe what you're expecting or maybe what you've heard before. And there is a, there is a very distinct uh, reason we are walking through these two books. Uh, it's because for this fellowship called Hyde Park, you're getting ready to get in your hands a set of documents that have been worked on for over a year and a half. You're probably going to get them in the next two to three weeks, hopefully that uh, is going to put in front of you quite a bit of changes that we're asking this membership to consider. And so First and Second Timothy is, is helping us to unpack some of the stuff that you're getting ready to get in your hands. Uh, they're called bylaws, but really what they are is our, is our vision, our mission, our structure as a church, and what we're to be about, not just today, but for the next five, ten years. I have had plenty of opportunity down through the years to, to speak to folks um, in various churches and various settings. And I've also had the opportunity to see churches fail, to see ministries fail. And some of them to this day have not recovered. As many of you know, I have the opportunity to teach with uh, Carolina College of Biblical Studies of Fable, and I enjoy that role that I get to participate in up there. And I'm often in classes, whether it be theology and doctrine or preaching or leadership or whatever, whatever the school asks me to teach, I try to do that and do it faithfully. But oftentimes I'll find myself in a classroom with a lot of folks who have a calling to the pastorate. Uh, that they know that God is calling them and has sent them to school to be equipped to be pastors in the local church. A couple semesters back, I had a group just like that. I was teaching a preaching course, 16-week semester, and it was about somewhere in that midweek of that semester that, uh, yet again, in the public square, all over social media and the news, another influential pastoral leader of a large ministry had a massive moral failure. And so those students came into my classroom that day with that on their mind. 
Have you heard about so-and-so? And have you heard about what happened? And man, they wrote so many books, and man, their church was huge. And, and I can't believe that, that this adulterous affair was going on behind the scenes. I had listened to their podcast. I had listened to their sermons. As a matter of fact, I had heard this man stand and preach the truth about marriage and about fidelity and about character. And for this to come out and for this to have been going on for years, they were mad about it. They were upset. And this has replayed itself multiple times, not only in the community across the country, but right here in this community, where pastors of churches have had major moral failure that really began in private, but then came out publicly. And when that happens, we've got to understand this church, when that happens, the lost people in our community, they sit back in their chair when they see it on Facebook, and this is what they say, see, what's the point in going to church? They say one thing, and they do something else. You see, character matters. Character matters not only in the individual Christian, but also in those that God has set apart to lead and to serve the church. In this class, we had a conversation Matter of fact, I kind of went off script that day because this was on the hearts of my students. So we, we kind of departed from our structure that day, and we, we spent a lot of time talking about this. And this is something I said to those, those classmates there. I said, look, I could take, if I could take five pastors that have had major moral failures, that got out into the public square, that basically destroyed their ministries, if I could get those five men to come on this stage and let me interview them and ask them some questions, and, and, and they be honest about it. Here's some things that you would learn about what led up to that moral failure. Number one, you would find out that these men were no longer practicing spiritual disciplines. What do I mean by that? They were no longer praying. They, they were no longer in God's Word other than preparing sermons. They, they, were, they were no longer worshiping privately and, and even corporately when they came into a worship service. It was all fake. They were raising their hands. They were, they were going through the motions of the ritual of worship, but they really, really weren't worshiping God at all. So the practical disciplines of the faith of, of following Jesus were not being practiced in their life privately, but yet publicly it looked like everything was okay. Secondly, their home life, their marriage was in a shambles. Now, when they, when they came on campus, everything looked fine. But behind the scenes, it was a disaster. Parenting was a disaster. The kids were absolutely, completely doing their own thing. Those leaders who were, who were to be leading the church would admit on this stage that there, is something, that there was something wrong and it had been going on for a while in their marriage, and they just didn't deal with it. They just kept putting on the mask and making out like everything was okay. The third thing you would find out is that these men became isolated. Now, what do I mean by that? That in the ministry, as the ministry began to grow and as the ministry began to be effective, they kind of pulled back from being connected to the church body and being held accountable. They, they didn't have any men in their life that were asking them hard questions like, how's your prayer life? You know, how, how's your marriage? How's your, uh, how's your time in the Word? What are you learning in God's Word? Nobody, no one was asking them any questions. It was almost they had, had arrived at this place of such power and influence that they felt like they didn't have to do that anymore, that they'd somehow risen to some playing field or some platform that, that what they were telling their congregation to do, they no longer had to do. Can I say to you, 
that that is a dangerous, dangerous set of circumstances. That any time I stand before you, that I'm telling you to do something that in my own private life I'm not doing, that is a road to a place of destruction that will tear down the witness of this church and destroy the ministry. I'm going to offer to you that there's two reasons why churches fail. There's two reasons why churches fail. Now, we can have a lot of side conversations. Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? But I think a lot of the issues we see in the local church come back to these two issues. Number one, a failure in leadership. There is a failure in leadership, whether that be deacons, whether that be the pastorate, whether that be the administration side of the church, whether that be, be money and how it's being handled, whether that be membership and how it's being handled, baptisms, any, any number of things. It comes down to a failure in leadership. And no doubt you can name instances of failed leaders in your life in the church. Right now, there's, a, there's, a, there's an image that comes to your mind. There's a person that comes to the front of your mind that says, yep, that person, that ministry was never the same. I've got friends. I've got friends that are pastors all over the state and, and in different states. And some of them have failed. And although they have tried their best to regain that influence that they had before, they've never been able to regain it. Because of that moral failure, that became public, it, it destroyed their ministry and their witness. So I think, number one, there's a failure in leadership. I think we can track a lot of failure to the failure of the church to follow leadership. Just as much as leaders fail, congregations fail to, to follow the leadership of the leaders they've called to lead the congregation. Doesn't that sound, well, kind of amazing? I know of churches, I've got friends, again, that are serving in churches where my friend went to be the pastor of this church. They wanted, they wanted him to be able to have, they wanted him to have a master's degree. They wanted him to have five years of leadership, pastoral leadership. They wanted him to have a, a track record of leading and a track record of, of, of helping churches to grow. He had all of that. He goes into this church because he believed that God called him there. But that church has rejected everything that he has tried to do in that church. Scripturally, everything he's tried to do has come right out of Scripture. And that church has, has rejected it because they value tradition more than they do God's Word. And he's about to quit. I'm not just talking about quit that church. He's thinking about quitting the ministry completely. Because they ask him to come and grow the church. They ask him to come and preach God's Word. They ask him to lead, but that congregation will not let him or anyone else in that congregation lead because they're always looking back. And what's back there is more important than what's in here. So I think there's a failure on two fronts, a failure in leadership and a failure in following. And that is exactly why Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. As a matter of fact, I want to show you, it's taken Paul a little while to get here, but look at chapter 3, look at verse 14. I'm going to start at the end of the chapter before we get into the beginning of the chapter. Listen to what Paul says as the reason why he's writing these letters to Timothy. Verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now, let's pause right there for just a moment. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you are the only church in Ephesus. You are the only gospel presence in Ephesus. 
And as such, you have a responsibility. You don't, not only do you have a responsibility to God and to make sure the church is doing what it's supposed to do, but you have a responsibility to be a pillar and a buttress of truth in Ephesus. He says that you are the church of the living God. You represent the creator of this universe, that that creator has spoken. And Timothy, you are speaking the words of the creator to that congregation to build them up, to edify them, to equip them, and to send them out into a community to represent the creator of the world. Listen, if you are part of this church or part of any church, you've been called out You are no longer part of the world. You're part of the body of Christ. And every time you enter the community, you represent the creator of the world. you got to understand there's there's some expectation that comes along with that. Timothy says that the church is meant to be a pillar and a buttress. It's interesting that he uses those terms. Here's what I think Paul was thinking about at that moment. You see, just down the street from where Timothy's church is, Timothy's church is a house church, maybe multiple house churches. But just just down the street, right in the middle of the city of Ephesus, is a massive, uh, historians tell us it's one of the wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana. And around that temple was some 70 columns that held up this massive roof structure. And underneath those 70 columns was layers and layers and layers of foundation. And step after step after step, I think there was some 50 or even maybe 75 steps leading up to the entrance of that false temple to that false goddess that everyone was flocking to. And Timothy is being told by Paul, Paul, that is not the foundation of this community. The foundation of this community where truth can be found is none other than that little house church that you're leading. And Timothy, you better protect it. You better protect it. And here's why. He says, great indeed. Great indeed is our responsibility. We confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed by the nations, and believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. Paul's saying here to Timothy, Timothy, remember who we're about. We're about Jesus. We're Jesus' people. We're all about Jesus, and that's who he's talking about. And Paul says, I confess that this this mystery of godliness that is connected to Jesus and his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, it's a mystery, but that's what we are to be about, is that right there. And when the character of the leadership of the church suffers, or when the church rejects the leaders that God has given them, that church suffers, and eventually that church will fail. Today, we're going to look at what Paul says about the leadership. And he's going to talk about two offices here. He's going to talk about elders, and he's going to talk about deacons. And I'm going to refer to those as both shepherds and servants. I'm going to refer to them as as servant leaders and lead servants, because that's really what they are. And what Paul's going to focus on more than anything else in this text is the character traits of these two offices. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how these two offices should be lived out in the local fellowship, the congregation, because Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, we've got to, we've got to lead the church, the household of God, in such a way that brings honor and glory to God and make sure that we have good character, good witness, good testimony to the people around us. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So Paul leads into this chapter or this section by starting off by saying that the role of overseer, which is elder, 
If we look throughout the New Testament, we'll see, we'll see the term overseer, we'll see the term elder, we'll see that term used a lot. And, and right here he says that those who aspire to the office of overseer, he desires a noble past. I want to make sure we understand what Paul's saying here. Paul is not saying that we are to be ambitious to get a deacon role or an elder role in the local church. As a matter of fact, this may surprise you. I did not want to become a pastor. As a matter of fact, I ran from it for three years. It was not something that, that I looked at and said, wow, you know, if I could jump into the pastor, I could have a lot of money. Just a lot of influence, and people could look up to me, and wow, if I could just, be, if I could just get that title, then boy, I could really have some power. No, as a matter of fact, I rejected it outright. Because me as an electrician, I couldn't possibly see myself doing what I do today. I didn't speak in front of people. Matter of fact, it's not something I wanted to do or ever, ever thought I would be doing. And it, it still brings fear to me every single Sunday. You know, might not know this. As I'm standing right there, as, as Bobby's wrapping, wrapping up the last song, my heart rate is about 120. My hands are still sweaty. I get nervous every single time I come up here, every time without fail. There's a reason for that because I know what God wants to do in this moment. I don't want to mess that up. He says, we're not to be ambitious that we're to aspire to it live in such a way live with the character qualities that we're going to talk about in such a way that the congregation looks at you and says you know what right there is a deacon right there's somebody that needs to be involved someone who needs to be more connected someone who needs to be in a role to where we set them apart and say we need you to serve in this role by the way i'll speak to our young men for just a moment if i could I know, I know that you're not aspiring to these roles. I know you're not doing that. I know you're not, what I mean, you're not being ambitious and you're saying, I want to do this, I want to do this. But here's what I'm saying to our young men in the church. We need you. We need you to serve. We need you to lead. And there may be a time in the very near future where we're going to approach you because we see qualities in you about what we're going to talk about that says to us that you, that God is setting you apart and that it's time to serve in this capacity. Not that we're to be ambitious, but we are to aspire. Be in a position where the congregation sees this in you, and it is a noble task to take on. Verse 2, he's going to start talking about the character traits. He says in verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about elders, I'm going to talk about deacons together. And in this particular character trait, Paul says this about both of them, and what he's talking about is the servant's walk. What is their walk of life in Christian faith? What does it look like? There, are, there should be traits in every single servant and every single leader that are obvious, that are, that are lining up with what Paul is teaching here. And the first one that he names is that an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach. He says the same thing about deacons in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, and let them also be tested first. We'll come back to that. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be what? Blameless. Does Paul, is Paul suggesting here that an elder must be perfect and a deacon must be perfect? Everybody shake your head, no. Because your elder, your, your pastor, all you need to do is have a conversation with my wife out here and you'll find out I am far from perfect. Matter of fact, you don't have to talk to her, talk to me. Because I, I put no air on about the fact that I have lots of failures in my life that God is working through and working me out of and, and helping me to overcome. But he's not saying perfection. I read this by John Calvin. John Calvin said that what this means is someone who is not marred with disgrace. 
In other words, someone who is, who is faithful to Jesus, not perfect, but faithful, following Jesus, that the following Jesus is, is the cornerstone of their life and the cornerstone of their home. Not that they're doing it perfectly because none of us are, but their desire is to please Jesus in every aspect of their life. And as a result of that, when people look at them, when people talk about them, they say, that guy right there, that guy right there is a Christ follower, above reproach. Good testimony. Hold short, short accounts on offering forgiveness or seeking forgiveness. In other words, somebody wrongs them. They're quick to make that right. Or they wrong somebody, they're quick to make that right. I have made major mistakes in the last eight years of leading this church. I have, I have done the wrong thing. I've said the wrong thing. And I've had to go back and I've had to ask forgiveness from those folks and say, I was wrong. Admit that I was wrong and make that right. So not that I'm perfect, not that any of us are, but Paul says we keep short accounts on offering forgiveness and seeking forgiveness, and that should be exemplified in both elders and deacons. He goes on to say in verse 3, he says down here in verse 3 for elders, he says, not a drunkard, not a drunkard. He says the same thing with deacons, and it's a little bit different, not giving to much wine. So the argument is, oh, deacons can drink a little, elders can't drink any. Not necessarily. What he's actually saying is, is that neither elder nor deacon can be given to something that takes control of their life. They, they can't be addicted to alcohol where alcohol controls how they live. Remember, a Christ follower being filled by the Holy Spirit, he is to be controlled, yielded to Christ in every aspect of his life. And when we consume alcohol, when we consume marijuana, yes, can I just say marijuana is a drug and it will, it will destroy your life. I do not care what this culture is saying right now. Marijuana will destroy your life. That's a little side. That wouldn't even be my sermon notes. I'll just give that to you freely, okay? Because I know it's running rampant right now. I know that, okay? But listen, when you put that stuff in your body, it controls your life. But not just chemicals and not just drugs and not just alcohol, but, but when you're consumed with pornography, it controls your life. When, when you're consumed with money, which he's going to call out in just a moment, when those things take over your life, they control your life. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, neither in elders nor in deacons can these people be consumed or consuming alcohol to where it controls their life. Well, pastor, I can quit any time. How about today? Well, you know, it's just not a good time for me. Well, what about tomorrow? That doesn't really work out for me either. Well, guess who's controlling your life? He says that they are not to be drunkards. Verse 3b and verse 8b, not to be greedy, lovers of money. He says it both for elders and deacons. He says that they are not to be lovers of money because money has the potential to become your God. That, that, that you can become so engrossed with money that money becomes everything to you. How many churches do you know where one of the leaders inside the church began to launder money and to hide it? And to steal, get this, steal from the congregation. It's because money became their God. And then Paul is going to focus some things on elders. At this point, that he, that he doesn't really mention about deacons. And I want you to understand that, that elders are held to a higher standard here. Not to say that, that any of these standards is, are not standards that every Christian should have in their life. This is not to say that, that elders should only be self-controlled and respectable. 
No, what you're going to find is both in the qualifications of elders and deacons, what you're finding is the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talked about in Galatians 5.22, that we're to be kind and gentle and loving. That, that is for every Christian to follow. So this is not like there's some kind of upper tier of Christianity and some lower tier, and you're not held responsible for any of this. Every follower of Jesus is to have these kind of characteristics in their life. It's just with elders and deacons, they are to be exemplified. They are to be an example to follow. Notice what he says. He says they are to be sober-minded elders. In other words, temperate, living within their limits. He, he says they are to be self-controlled. They are to have sound judgment, in other words. They are to be reasonable. They are to be, they are to be people who are, who are living within limits, that they are controlling themselves, that nothing else has control over their life except Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He says here that they are to be respectable. Respectable means that they are to be guided by principles. That, that, that the elder is not to be blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That everything that they see on the internet or everything that they read on Facebook doesn't become the gospel truth. That they know what principles are. They know that those principles are derived from Scripture. And they could easily show you in Scripture what principles really are. And that they live by those principles themselves. It says here hospitable. It means loving of strangers. Isn't it interesting that elders, what you know to be a pastor, is called to be hospitable to other people? To kind, gentle to those who are not part of the church, that, that they're not to be quarrelsome and angry and always looking for a fight, but they're to be hospitable. It says here, not violent. In other words, controls his emotions, especially anger. That he, that he is not given fits of anger, fits of rage, that when he is offended, when he is, when he is painted into a corner, when he's even attacked by someone else, that he doesn't let anger get the best of him. That he doesn't just lash out and start swinging and hitting and hurting and gossiping and tearing the other person down. It says here that he is supposed to be gentle, moderate, kind-hearted. He's not to be argumentative. In other words, peaceable. And notice here in verse 2, for elders in particular, Paul calls out able to teach. That is one of the single most differences between elders and deacons. You don't see that in deacons because deacons aren't required to fulfill that role. But elders certainly are. And what that means is not necessarily called to preach. But what it means is they can take God's Word and they can sit down with you with whatever issue you're dealing with and they can walk you through Scripture and teach you about what God's Word says about whatever issue you're dealing with, whether that be in a small group, an individual, counseling, out in the community. They can articulate the gospel and they can talk about Jesus and they can do it correctly from God's Word. This is what Paul says an elder, an overseer, is supposed to be about. He says here to, to Timothy, Timothy, make sure that the people that you're inviting up into this role, make sure that they have a servant's attitude and a servant's walk and a servant's heart. But, but Paul doesn't start, stop there. He moves on to the family life of both overseer, elder, and deacon. He says this, both are to be the husband of one wife. The Greek behind that English says that they are to be a one-woman man. Now, 
Lots of different churches approach this a lot of different ways. So I'm going to unpack a little bit of it. Don't have time to do it all. We're going to have some meetings later on. We're going to go a little deeper in this. But for today, let me just give you a little bit of a purview here. There are some churches that take the position that say that if you have ever been divorced for any reason whatsoever, you can never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, serve as a deacon or a pastor or an overseer, elder. Now, there are some churches that have went the opposite direction. They're, they're saying, we don't care what your past has been with your marriage. We don't care how your marriage is today. We need a warm body in this deacon position. So here, I would offer to you that both of those extremes are not in step with Scripture. Let me give you a couple examples. I have had the opportunity to minister to men down through the years, and I have met men who, when they got out of high school, they, I know one particular instance where this young man, he was now an older man now, but when I got to know him, right out of high school, he was not a Christian. He had never put his faith in Jesus, and he rushed into a marriage. He rushed into a marriage, and he didn't even know how to, he didn't even know how to be a man, much less he didn't know anything about Christ. His wife didn't know anything about Christ. They were completely, they were not connected to the church. And that marriage made it about two years. And it was constant fighting, constant. And finally, that, that whole marriage ended in divorce. A couple of years later, he gets in the church, and he gives his heart and life to Christ. He becomes transformed. All of his past has been forgiven. All that's gone in God's eyes. He meets a young lady in the church. They get married. Both of them are Christians. He is doing amazing. He's grown so much. And at the time I was ministering in this particular situation, this guy was serving in every aspect of the church, was faithful. He had all the characteristics that you could possibly talk about. And in my mind and in God's mind, I believe that that man was qualified to serve as a deacon because God didn't even remember that previous marriage when he was lost. So maybe we should consider men in that situation. Second situation, what about someone who, who in their marriage, both Christians, wife steps out, commits adultery. He does everything he can to restore that marriage. He does everything he can, tries to go to counseling, does everything he can to fix the marriage, but she will not have any part of it. So she pursues the other man, goes through with the with the divorce, and he's left holding the bag. A man of character, a man of integrity, a man of peace, a man who's following Christ and did everything he could to save his marriage. Should that man be considered? That's the things we need to talk about. That's the things we need to consider in relation to Scripture. But here's the point. The point is, is that Paul lays this out for Timothy to say to Timothy, Timothy, these people must be people of character, and their family and their home life counts how they're leading their wife, how their marriage is working, how they're leading their kids. He says here, not only are they to be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, but he's to be faithful in his marriage, and he is to manage their households well. Now, I'm going to pick on the search committee for just a minute. I know there's some of them sitting in here this morning, but I, 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 I think I figured this out. So eight-plus years ago, when I was interviewing with your search committee, they had come, they were going to come and hear me preach for the first time, and I was in Mount Airy at a friend of mine's church. So they came, and, and, and the, the, the day's events were we were going to, I was going to preach at that service, and then afterwards, they'd invited my family to, to meet with them at Golden Corral. Now, at the time, I didn't realize that I think that was intentional. Because if you want your kids to go off rails, if you want your kids to lose their minds, take them to Golden Corral. 
And I don't know if they had planned this in advance. Robert Lawson said you did. I don't know if you did or not. But Robert Lawson said that that was part of the plan that to get us into to a golden corral, and then they're going to observe my family. I don't think any of my kids put their hands in the chocolate fountain. That might have happened. I don't know. Uh, we'll deny it if it did. But if anything was going to go wrong, it was going to go wrong at Golden Corral. But your search committee was doing what the Scripture asked them to do in finding an overseer, an elder, a pastor for the church. They observed my family. They talked to my wife. They talked to my kids to find out who is this guy really. If you want to find out who someone is really, just just talk to their family. The, The people who spend time with them, Talk to them. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, both deacons and elders, take a look at the household. Does this mean that they have to have a perfect marriage? No. Does it mean they have to have perfect kids? No, because mine aren't perfect or yours? No. But what should be seen in that setting is kids that respect their father. If you have kids that don't respect their father, there could be a problem there. There should be respect. There should be love. There should be kindness, at least, even at, even at Golden Corral. Paul says, Timothy, it's important to take a look at their family life and to consider how is that family? Are they healthy? So not only does he talk about the servant's character, the servant's walk, and the servant's family life, he also wants to talk about the servant's experience. Notice this. He says to elders, Look down in verse uh, 6, I think it is. Verse 6, he says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And then with, with, with deacons, he says this. He says that they must be tested first in verse 10. So Paul says to Timothy, if you've got somebody that just came up out of the baptistry, and, and, and they're, they're, they're breathing upright and and they, they seem to be like they love the church, but they just, they just put their faith in Jesus, you probably don't need to consider them for a role. And don't you know why Paul was saying this to Timothy? Timothy is in Ephesus where there is no other churches but his. And his church is beginning to grow. And what do churches do when they start growing? They just start throwing warm bodies at every ministry they can find. They don't even consider whether this person is, is wired for that ministry or even if they have the character traits to back that up. So Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, I know, I know the pressure. The pressure is, is to just start throwing people into leadership roles, but you've got to be careful with that because if they are new believers, you're putting them in a position to fail. And with elders, he says that they'll be puffed up with conceit. In other words, they'll get this title, and they'll think that the title's all that this is really about. And, they, and people love titles, so I, I've got the, the title of elder, but my life and my character does not back that up. And therefore, they become, well, they become a terrible witness for the church. Their experience matters. And it takes time to observe these traits in these individuals, so don't get in a hurry So the servant's experience matters. Then finally, Paul talks about the servant's witness. Look at what he says about elders in verse 7. He says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, 
so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Isn't that interesting? Paul says that the elder must have a good rapport with the people around him outside the church. Those who have not heard about Jesus yet, that particular leader needs to have the ability to have a good rapport with them. And if, and if he doesn't, here's what happens. It says that he falls into disgrace, which means his testimony is hurt, and he's caught in the snare of the devil. It's important that an elder, an overseer, is able to be kind and gentle for people outside of these four walls. That anyone who walks in or anyone they walk into or speak to out in the community, people that they're doing things with in the community that maybe not be Christians and they're out there to be a witness of the church of God. Paul says they need to be well thought of. It may not be that they agree with your with your beliefs. It may not that they believe that they, that they agree with the church or agree with the gospel, but when it's all said and done, they say, you know what? That, that guy, that guy's all right. That guy, that guy's got something different about him. And this is what he says about deacons in verse 10. I'm sorry, verse nine. He says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The deacon must know the gospel. The deacon must know the principles of God's Word, and they must be able to hold that with a clear conscience. In other words, they must be able to live by the same principles that they're emulating in the congregation. That if I'm serving, and I've got those character traits to be set apart as a servant in the church, then he must do it with clear conscience. In other words, he must walk the walk and talk the talk. I want to spend the last little bit of time we've got talking about the roles. We, we've talked about these qualifications, some with elders, some with deacons, some are the same, some are different. But, but now, how do, these, how do these roles play themselves out in the local church? Well, for most Southern Baptist churches, and if you're new today, if you're new to our church today, we are a Southern Baptist church, part of the Robinson Baptist Association, the North Carolina Baptist, and the Southern Baptist as a whole. Across the 4,000 Southern Baptist churches in North Carolina, the majority of those churches have what is basically a structure where deacons are serving as elders. So, so the deacons are, are leading, casting vision, providing oversight, doing all of those roles. So they're trying to do both the role of serving and the role of leading. So it's almost like a, a quasi-elder deacon role kind of combined. And, the, and most of the time in most Southern Baptist churches, and by the way, most Southern Baptist churches in North Carolina are 100 people or less. Okay? I think it's something like 75, 80%. And the only elder that they have is a single pastor. He's understood to be this overseer elder. The deacons are quasi-elder deacons doing both roles. Turn over to Acts chapter 6. I'm not going to read this whole text, but I want you to see it. So if you, you want to take a look at it later, then by all means. We, we walked through the whole book of Acts back before the pandemic. And so some of this is going to be familiar. Acts chapter 6, I think, is, is one of the best texts in the New Testament that shows us how this works. So at Acts 6, five years have passed since Peter preached his sermon after they came out of the upper room. Five years. During that five years, the church has grown exponentially. We now have thousands of people part of the church body. But what you also have is you have a, a, a multi-ethnic congregation now, mostly made up of Jews 
And when I mean by Jews, I mean people who, who were Jews living around Jerusalem practicing Judaism. They put their faith in Jesus, okay? And now they're part of the body of Christ. So now they are wrestling through what it means to be a Christ follower, but haven't been raised a Jewish person. But you also have another group of people who've come into the church, and they're, record, they're called the Hellenists. Now, the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. Now, if you want to have a, a complicated identity, listen to this. So these were Greek people who, were, who had been raised in Greek culture, at some point had converted to Judaism. But, but they still kind of adhered to a Greek culture. So there was, there was opposition between the Judaism or the Jerusalem Jews, the Jews that had been raised in Judaism, ethnic Jews, and then those who were in Greek culture who became Jews at a later time. But then those Greek-speaking Jews became Christians. Now it gets really complicated. So now we have people in the church who are one, on one side ethnic Jews, and on the other side you've got Greek culture people who came to Judaism and then converted to Christianity. So you have a tension here. Now there was all kinds of racial tension between the Jerusalem Jews and the Hellenistic Jews already. Now you've got both groups in the body of Christ, and you've got, well, you've got opportunity here for all kinds of problems. Well, in chapter 6, we find some of those problems. The church was giving food away because a lot of these people were poor. They didn't have much. So they're giving away food, and they had all this ration of food, and they were giving it away. Now, these Hellenistic Christians or Hellenistic Jews that became Christians, they felt like their widows were being left out of those rations. Now, whether that was actually happening or whether it was perception, it could have been that the church was so busy, there's so many people that they're discipling, that some people fell through the cracks. Who knows? But the perception is, is that the Hellenist Jews, their widows, were getting left out which means that it'd be easy for one, someone to say, well, that's just racism. They're just racist. These, these Christian Jews don't like the Hellenist Christians, so therefore they're, they're treating us poorly. Somebody had to do something quick here. So the apostles, Peter, James, John, the, the leaders of the church, if you look at verse 2, the latter part, it says this. This is they get together. They agree they've got to do something. This is what they say. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Now, if we're not careful, when we read that statement, we can think, oh, wow, Peter, he's kind of uppity here. Who's Peter think he is? I'm not going to serve any tables. Well, the fact is, they're all serving. The fact is, they are all hands on deck trying to fix this problem, and the church is growing exponentially. So it's not as though Peter's saying, I'm too good for this. Peter says, this is not what I'm called to do. And that the church must have leaders. The church must have someone who's in God's Word and praying and if all I ever do is serve tables, there's no way that I can have time left over for my family, for, for prayer, for staying in God's Word, for casting vision, for protecting the flock. So guys, we've got to do something. So here's what we're going to do. Pick seven men who are solid in their character. It says here, of good repute, which fits in perfectly with what Paul's saying to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. Full of spirit and wisdom. Separate them to this duty. Now, the word diakonos is not used anywhere. That's the Greek word for deacon. It's not used anywhere. But the idea is here. You have elders who are given oversight, preaching the word, prayer, giving oversight to this body. But, but then you have another group of people who are serving the needs of the people. That is their primary role, to make sure that the congregation is being taken care of in felt needs and whatever else comes down the line, that the deacons are meant to do that. 
to give the elders, overseers, the time to spend in word and prayer. Go back to 1 Timothy. So let's talk a little bit about these roles. Now, if you go over to 1 Peter 5, you can read a really good text there about elders. You don't have to go over there. You can go to Acts 20, where Paul is meeting with the elders from Ephesus and Miletus. You can see some good information there. But here's, here's what I want to do. I want to sum that up for you. Elders focus on the ministry of the Word. Elders focus on prayer. Elders focus on leading and feeding the flock and protecting the church as a whole. The elders, the overseers, have been given the task to do exactly that. They are to serve the body by leading the body. And leading means feeding, protecting, serving, making sure that we're moving together into Great Commission work. The elders must be looking out four, five, six years, ten years, saying, okay, wh where do we see culture going? How can we pray? How can we, how can we lead our congregation to be effective in Great Commission work? That's what they're to be doing. What are the deacons to be doing? Well, the deacons are going to serve the elders, just like we saw in Acts 6, that the deacons are going to serve the elders. They'll let the elders spend the time in God's Word and in prayer. Does that mean deacons don't pray? No. If anything, it means they pray more because they're having to serve the fellowship. The deacons also serve the body. They're an example to follow. Both the elders and the deacons are to be examples to follow, but the deacons are to be the example of service. That when the fellowship of Hyde Park says, what does it look like to serve at Hyde Park? The first things they're going to think of is the deacons who welcome people at the door, the, the deacons who are out there taking care of the grounds, the deacons who are out there making sure that widows, the needs of widows are being met, the deacons who've maybe given you a call and said, hey, what can we do at your house? You need something? You see, the first thing you're going to think of is that deacon. And then as you see that deacon serve, as you see that deacon engage in that ministry, it's going to become an example to you. That's what Paul's writing to Timothy. Now I want you to understand something. The elders, the oversight that they've been given is given by two, 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 two entities. Jesus has empowered them to do that. But listen, the congregation itself gives those elders, the right to lead. You see, all through the New Testament, what I see over and over again is that the congregation has been given responsibility. In other words, when I get done preaching today, if you guys say, you know what, I just don't like what he's saying. I just don't care for it. You could, you could get a group together. You could have a business meeting this afternoon. And if you got enough people supporting you and you got a motion and a second, all that other stuff, and you vote, you could vote this afternoon that I'm no longer your pastor. That's the authority that you have. You, you, can, you can decide that, that the staff as we've got it right now, you could come together and say, and say you know, we, we don't want the staff to be part of this church anymore. We're done with all of them. And you could come together. You could have that vote. I hope you don't, but you could do that. That's the authority that's been invested in you. So the authority that the, the elders have to lead has been given to them by the congregation. So there is, a, there is a, a servant's heart going both ways there that the, the elders lead and cast vision, but the congregation has kind of given them that role and given them the opportunity to do that and respect that role. So in closing, we're here on this text today for a very specific reason. Number one, well, it was next in line. <laughs> Number two, is just in a few weeks, you're going to be getting some documents in your hands, and this is for the membership of High Park. You're going to be getting some documents in your hands in the next couple of weeks 
And they're known as bylaws. And you're thinking, wow, that sounds really exciting. But don't, don't think of it as, as bylaws. Think about it as the vision for this church for the next five to ten years. That's what I want you to, that's how I want you to read it. We haven't, we haven't had a radical change in our bylaws since, get this, 1997. Has anything changed since 1997? Yeah, a little bit. But you're going to be getting those in your hands. And one of the first things you're going to see in those documents is we're going to have two offices, elder and deacon. And what I'm asking you to consider, and again, it's up to you. These bylaws have to be approved by this membership. So we're not, we're not like force-feeding you anything. You get to choose. We've done a year and a half, over a year and a half work on this. And if you say no, then we go back, we start over. That's how it works. But here's what I want you to consider. What I'm asking you to do is to allow me to have some men around me that hold the position of elder, who can hold me accountable, who can walk with me, who can pray with me, who can cast vision for me, who can maybe take over some responsibilities that I've been doing. Listen, you have, you have too much responsibility invested in me. It took me about three years to gain your trust. It took me about three years. Based on what had happened in the past, me coming here, it took about three years for me to really gain a connection point with this congregation and begin to move forward. And then what did we have? Well, we had hurricanes, you know, beyond my control. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider that I need some men called elders, as Paul defines them right here, that are around me, that can walk with me, cast a vision with me, and lead this church. I'm talking about lay men. Those men are already here. There are men already in our church fulfilling these roles. There are already men that have that are hold me accountable. What I want to do is I want to recognize them. I want to set them apart. And I want to separate out what deacons are doing and elders are doing. I want our elders to lead and to serve and, and, and to cast vision alongside me so that when we raise men up in this congregation, they are fulfilling that role that Timothy is being taught about by Paul. And then we want the deacons to do what deacons are supposed to be doing. They're already doing it. What I want you to do is to affirm that in our documents, affirm that in our vision, affirm that in our mission. I want you to read that. I want you to pray about it. Everything that you're going to read there, we've tried to back up with Scripture. You are not going to find a lot of man's opinion in there. But what I'm asking you to do as a fellowship is to consider a couple things, and I'm going to close with this. First of all, healthy leadership. Healthy leadership relies on multiple servant leaders, not just one. Do you understand that I have the potential, that I have the potential to make a disgrace out of this church? I want you to understand that, that I have the potential in me to make a huge moral failure and bring disgrace upon High Park Baptist Church. I've got that potential in me. You, you may be surprised to hear that, but listen. I struggle with the same things you do. I keep my nose in God's Word. I keep my nose in prayer. I keep walking close to Jesus as I possibly can. But I know what the flesh and the potential that the flesh has. And whatever you feed will lead. And church, you have given me a lot of responsibility. You've given me a lot of trust. And I do not want to break that trust. So what I want to have is some men that are leading at that level who are around me. Who ask me the hard questions. Who look at me and say, how's your prayer life? Who look at me, I've already got those men, trust me, I've got those men in, but I want those men here, recognized, separated, just as Paul is talking about here, to lead this church into our future. It's not wise 
to have all too much responsibility invested in just one person. And I, I, I feel honored that you've trusted me that much. But moving forward in the future, I want to spread that out a little bit. I think wisdom requires that. Number two, healthy ministry requires lead servants and servant leaders who set an example. If we're great commission people, we're to do great commission work. The only way we can do great commission work is if we have a good testimony in the community. That our yes is yes and our no is no. That our walk and our talk match up as closely as we possibly can. And you especially want that in your leadership and in your service. You especially want that in the deacon body who's serving this fellowship and serving out in our community to be, to be people of character. You especially want that to be in your elders who are leading and praying and casting vision for the church. You want those people to have integrity and have a good testimony and to set a good example. And then finally, healthy churches recognize, respect, and honor servant leaders and lead servants. We're talking about two offices here. We're talking about separating some people out. And we're, we're talking about setting, putting them in a role in which they are to either serve the needs of the fellowship or, or to lead the fellowship forward. And as we set them out, not only do we recognize what God is doing in their life, but we celebrate that. And not only do we celebrate that, but we honor them. And we respect them. And we understand that, that God is doing something in their life and that God has blessed us with servants and leaders that a lot of churches just don't have. You've heard me say this before, it's worth saying again. Some of you, the only thing you know about a deacon's meeting is fist fights and uh, fist fights and running the pastor down and trying to figure out how to kick him out and get the next one in. Some of you, that's all you know about deacons. I've been here eight years, over eight years now. I don't even know how many deacons meetings I've been to. I could probably count them up as a lot. There's never been one deacon's meeting that I walked out of and said, I can't wait to get out of this church. There's not been one deacon's meeting where it turned into an argument. There's not been one deacon's meeting where I walked out of that room and said, man, I wish that guy was in another church. Church, we are blessed beyond. I cannot tell you how blessed we are to have some of the men we've got that are serving this church. They are some of my best friends. And I know, I know that they not only support me behind closed doors, but they support me outside of that room. And we have never had one bad deacons meeting, and we've never had one bad business meeting here. Can you get that? We've never had a business meeting where it's went off the rails, not a single time. Hyde Park, that is something that is beautiful and amazing and glorious, and I am thankful for it, and I thank God weekly for that, for that reality here. But I'm going to tell you something. Satan would like nothing more than to divide this fellowship, tear down the pastorate, destroy our testimony, and derail this entire ministry for the next five years. He'll do it with alcohol. He'll do it with lust. He'll do it with the love of money. He'll do it any way he can. But he is patient and he is willing to wait. We cannot let that happen. I read this recently, and I think it's worth considering, that every single pastor is an interim pastor. I'm an interim pastor. 
I won't be here forever. There'll be one day I'm either dead or God says do something else. Until that time, I'm here. But I'm an interim pastor. And what that means is we've got to get ourselves ready for the future. We've got to get ourselves ready for what this culture is going to bring at us. We have got to be healthy. Healthy in our structure, healthy in our leadership, healthy in, in even our documentation. We've got to be healthy. We've got, we got to do things right. We've got to be above reproach. We have got to focus on this. And church, what I'm asking you to do, membership, what I'm asking you to do, is in the weeks ahead, Take these documents we're going to put in your hands, pray about them, consider them, and then we're going to call you together, and we're going to have some questions and answer. You can ask all the questions you want to ask. And when the time is right, when the Holy Spirit says it's time, I'm going to ask you to support it. If you choose otherwise, it will not hurt my feelings. Eh, maybe a little bit. But we'll be okay. But I want you to know my heart for the future, and that is that we reach this community and we be about Great Commission work. And I want you to be part of that. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness, your kindness, and thank you especially for the patience of this congregation. I know today's sermon is not exactly typical, I guess. But Father, your word focuses us on things that are important, things we must take serious, things we must consider. And Father, I believe, I truly believe, that our best days are ahead of us. Regardless of what the culture is saying, regardless of what they think about us, our best days are ahead. I think we're right on the verge, right on the edge of a revival. I think we're right on, the, right on the edge of seeing a miraculous move of your hand. But Father, we've got to be ready to receive that. We've got to be ready to enter the harvest. We've got to be ready. And Father, being ready means having a good testimony, having leaders and having servants that have a heart for you and character to back that up. Father, they're already here. You've already brought them to us. And we thank you for it. Now, Father, I pray that as we move forward into the future, that we would be aligned with your word as close as we possibly can. And that it would bring you honor and glory as we reach more and more people for the cause of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.